Welcome to For the Love of Brantford, a podcast about the evolving story of our community. This podcast is for everyone who holds a place in their heart for our beautiful city. I'm Nathan Etherington, the Program and Community Coordinator for the Brant Historical Society. I'll be sharing some information from the Brant Historical Society archives and other sources to share some history that you may not have learned in school. And I'm Andy Samwell, president of the Eagle Place Community Association, and I'm passionate about community. And for me, you'll hear about what's happening in our community now. And I'm Zila Ozels from the Brantford Public Library. I'll be speaking with experts to get an idea of where our community is going. If you have any questions or comments that you would like to share with us, fill in our feedback form on the podcast website at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB. We hope you join us each episode as we learn from each other and explore Brantford's past, present, and future. This is a bonus episode with the full interview between myself, Zila, and Professor Robert McLeeman. My name is Robert McLemon, and I am a professor of environmental studies at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Canada. Can you briefly describe what is included in the chapter you worked on? So I was one of the coordinating lead authors for chapter seven of the most recent report of working group two of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which released a report in February 2022 uh, concerning the impacts adaptation and vulnerability of people to climate change. And so chapter seven was focused on the impacts of climate change on human health, well-being, migration, conflict, and displacement. So a very wide range of what we might call human security or human well-being issues. And so myself and a team of a dozen authors from around the world worked together to assess Uh, scholarly research and publications that have come out over the last five or six years uh, on that topic, assessing the key messages and uh, writing them out and presenting them in a way that's accessible to policymakers and to the general public. And just to clarify, because when I was looking at it, uh, and maybe clarify for our listeners, um, so you kind of looked at what already existed out there. You didn't do any research yourself specifically. That's correct, yes. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change does not itself actually conduct research. Uh, What it is, it's a panel of scientific experts that are drawn from around the world uh, who are experts in specific fields related to climate change. And then what each chapter team does is that it actually does a synthesis or an assessment of all the scholarly uh, publications in that field that have come out since the previous uh, assessment report. So for my team, for example, we were looking at all the peer-reviewed scientific publications since 2015 on topics related to how climate change affects human health, physical health and mental health, human well-being more generally, how uh, migration displacement may be affected by climate change or how vulnerable 
are people displaced because of, say, conflicts? How vulnerable are they to climate change? And the question of whether climate change can actually cause or uh, exacerbate uh, conflicts and violence around the world. Who is the most vulnerable from the impacts of climate change and what makes them more vulnerable? There's a large number of people in any given community who will be more vulnerable than others to the impacts of climate change. But there are certain common characteristics, whether you're talking about in Canada, in uh, West Africa, whether you're talking about uh, community level vulnerability or whether you're looking at national level vulnerability. So, for example, when we're thinking about health and well-being, uh, we find that, for example, women and children are often more vulnerable to the health risks associated with climate change because those health risks are things like extreme heat, uh, the chance of communicable diseases or waterborne diseases, which are uh, serious um, killers of children, quite frankly, in less developed parts of the world, uh, waterborne diseases are. Um, we also find, for example, that Indigenous people are also uh, often more vulnerable than other groups uh, to specific risks of climate change, often because their livelihoods uh, and well-being is much more tightly connected to uh, resources and to biodiversity than people, say, who live in large urban centers. Uh, we also find that impoverished people are generally more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, because if you think about extreme heat, one of the ways that we protect ourselves is to have nice air-conditioned homes and buildings, which is fine if you can afford air conditioning, uh, but we often find that hospital admissions, that uh, healthcare visits, and even deaths related to heat stroke and extreme heat, it's the elderly who are more vulnerable to that because they are the ones who, if they don't have those access to those uh, those facilities, um, the elderly and uh, and the poor, um, they are are more at risk. And indeed, elderly people more generally, just because their health often has comorbidities and other pre-existing health conditions, so that um, you know, if you're already someone, for example, who suffers from diabetes or hypertension or um, you know cardiac uh, problems then adding additional risk because of climate change due to extreme heat and so on, it just amplifies those risks as well. Um, and we also find people who live in particular types of housing are more vulnerable than others. If you think about extreme storms, for example, so people who live in trailers or who live in substandard housing, whether it's here in Canada or in other parts of the world, uh, they're at greater risk of injury or harm during extreme storm events, greater risk of displacement. Uh, people who live in low-lying areas uh, that are close to hazards or people who live in fire prone areas will be more exposed to the risks of climate change than others. I know it sounds like a long list and pretty soon you, it might be easier to say, well, who isn't vulnerable to climate change? And I guess in one way, we are all to a certain extent uh, vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. Nobody is exempt from these risks. It's just that certain groups, just because of their age or their pre-existing health conditions or how they live or where they live, are just more exposed to those risks and hazards than the rest of us. It's a really good way to sum that up, kind of um, thinking of low lying. I know in Brantford, we have a good segment of the population living in floodplains. And I think a scary statistic, like only four or 6% of people who live in those areas actually know that they live in a flood risk zone. But I did a floodplain walk touring the edge of the floodplain in Brantford, just mm. in the neighborhood near here. And yeah, people were very surprised. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's been research shown that for every half degree Celsius that average temperatures rise, 
uh, it causes a 50% increase in the risk of severe flooding in most floodplains because of, you know, more dynamic storms and, and precipitation events and so on. So as we warm the planet, we, we amplify the risk of, of flood damage. So in preparing for this interview, I did learn um, that this IPCC assessment report that you were part of was the first to look at the impact of climate change on mental health. So what are the concerns around mental health and is there a reason it wasn't included in previous assessments? This is a new area of research that's only emerged in the last five or maybe 10 years, but really the last five or six years, which is how climate change can affect people's mental health and well-being. We, of course, we know the physical risks associated with vector-borne diseases, waterborne diseases, heat, and so on. But one of the things that scientists are starting to recognize now is that there are direct and indirect consequences of climate change for people's mental health and well-being. So some of the direct impacts, for example, would be people who actually experience an extreme heat event or uh, experience property damage or, or loss of a loved one because of extreme events that causes everything from anxiety to, to, to higher levels of stress to even post-traumatic stress disorder if somebody's experienced a particularly uh, challenging event as well. So those are sort of the, the direct risks. Uh, the indirect risks would be, for example, say, that I personally haven't experienced one of these extreme events, but I have loved ones who have, and that obviously causes greater anxiety for me. Uh, there can be other indirect risks as well associated with just the recognition that your livelihood or well-being may be compromised by these emerging risks. There's quite a bit of research showing that young people in particular are very vulnerable to anxiety and higher stress levels because they're the ones who not only do they they realize that the climate is changing around them, but that this is something that has great uh, importance for their future well-being, their livelihoods, right? They're going to be the ones who have to live with this for another 50 years. And when they hear projections that, you know, 50 years from now, there's going to be, you know, hundreds of millions of people displaced from their homes around the world. If they hear that risk related to flood or to vector-borne diseases or to extreme heat, that you know, the, the risks just keep going up and up. Just the knowledge of that can create stress and anxiety and that's been well-documented. And it's not because young people are you know, emotionally fragile or anything like that. It's just genuine anxiety for very well-founded reasons. And so it's another reason why we need to tackle climate change, the underlying causes, reduce greenhouse gas emissions because it does amplify people's fears and concerns about the future. We want young folks to be optimistic and hopeful about the future, but the story that they're hearing about climate change, which is very factual and real, is that things are not looking good in the future unless we start changing our ways now. So these are all just some of the many ways in which our, our mental well-being is, is at risk because of this changing climate that we're living in. I, I, so I've heard of the term climate grief. Is are you familiar with that? And is that is that kind of like encompassing of the things you've talked about, or is that a more specific idea? So climate grief is related to what we've been talking about in terms of anxiety and concerns and mental health risks associated with knowledge of what's uh, taking place with climate change, um, and it is a sense of loss. And so, for example, um, you know. Uh, 
let's say someone has an emotional attachment to say tigers or elephants or or some sort of wild species that's at risk not because necessarily of climate change but just because at risk of extinction because of hunting and poaching and habitat loss and so on even though they themselves don't particularly own a tiger uh, may never have even seen a tiger in the wild nonetheless the knowledge that that species may disappear and may never be seen again is enough to cause uh, genuine anxiety or or loss, a, a sense of loss. I mean, when we think about loss, we often think about personal loss, you know, the, the death of a, a person who's close to you or the illness, uh, severe illness of someone or even, you know, a family pet, uh, we feel a sense of loss. Well, humans are capable of feeling a much greater sense of loss than just these very uh, individualized, personalized responses. So climate grief is, is an area of research where people are realizing uh, or, or exploring how you and I respond to the knowledge that you know certain places may simply cease to exist or are ceasing to exist. We have communities here in Canada, for example, that need to be relocated in the very near future because where they're situated right now um, it is no longer viable because of rising sea levels and extreme storm events. There's communities in the Northwest Territories, for example, right now, where we are actively planning, you know, what happens next in the next 20 years, because people simply cannot live in those locations anymore. And when it happens that they have to, to, to relocate, they will experience grief over the loss of a place to which they've become attached over the course of generations and so on. So there's many ways in which this can manifest itself. Uh, and it's still a new area of research, but it's an important one as well. And I think it comes back to that fact that humans, whether you know we want to admit it or not, are very strongly attached to the natural environment and to the world around us. And when we see damage being done to it, in many cases because of our own foolishness, uh, we can't help but feel emotional responses uh, to that. Yeah, <laughs> I have lots this is of getting to be a feelings. bit of a bummer, isn't it? Maybe <laughs> feel free to edit that down to just a few sentences. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, it's 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 definitely something deeply on my mind, like all of the time, and especially like it's weird to have that sense of loss to even things that yeah I didn't even experience myself or. Mm -hmm. uh, anyways, that's a little bit of a tangent. Um, maybe I don't know if this will bring it up a little, but um, in terms of the last question that I have here, what can individuals or even communities do to adapt to the impacts of climate change? This is where I think we can be hopeful because you know we, we can't predict the future, but we can try to make it what we want it to be. And so for communities, for individuals, there are a great many things that we can do to A, reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and B, uh, prepare ourselves for a future where there's a good chance that our day-to-day well-being may be disrupted uh, because of the impacts of climate change. And it becomes a question of daily practice. I wish there was a button we could push and say, okay, this will make things better. Um, that button doesn't exist yet, but there are things we can do on a daily basis. So in terms of dealing with the root of the problem, so addressing you know, greenhouse gas emissions, every time that you substitute a trip on a bicycle or uh, as a pedestrian for a car journey, or whether you're taking a bus instead of a car ride, you are contributing towards being part of the solution, right? You're reducing your greenhouse gas emissions. Every time that you switch from say, buying that store-bought steak or hamburger to a vegetarian meal, you don't have to become vegan, you don't have to become vegetarian, but if just one 
day a week, you can choose food items that have lower carbon footprints, and those are typically vegetarian or vegetable-based meals. Uh, if you can do that once a week, you've now reduced your food-related carbon impact by one-seventh. And if you can go through sort of your day-to-day -day activities and think about if everybody just reduced a little bit of their impact on the environment in all of these different ways, then collectively it makes a big difference. But in terms of the the, the question of, of how we adapt and how our communities can adapt, well, we, we do know that these risks already exist. Uh, folks in Brantford, Ontario, for example, they know that flooding is a is a regular risk at certain times of the year. And there's been a lot of public investment that's been made in terms of flood proofing the city and infrastructure, but there are limits to, to that, that infrastructure. And so households, they can choose, for example, you know, it sounds silly, but never store anything valuable, you know, uh, in the basement or even on the ground floor. If it's a, an heirloom or something of great value, put it up a floor. And that way, if your, your building is somehow damaged by flooding, your valuables are protected. If you think about your own health, for example, um, you know, there's a whole many different ways that climate change will impact our health. And one of the classic ones for people who live in cities is heat, extreme heat events, you know, heat waves. They're becoming more and more frequent in the summertime. So what can you as an individual do? Well, obviously, if you can afford air conditioning, that's great. But even if you can't, there are things you can do. So if you have a, a home, plant trees, plant vegetation. The city can invest in planting more trees and vegetation because cities have something called an urban heat island effect. It means that all that pavement, all those asphalt shingles on the rooftops, all those dark building walls and so on, they trap heat on a hot day. And so the temperature in the city will be higher than the temperature in the countryside around the city because there's more vegetation in the countryside. Okay, so the solution then is to put more vegetation in the city to provide shade, to provide those ecosystem services we call that moderate the temperatures. So these are just a few of the, the many things that we can do if we think about, and it, it will vary from one family or household to another, um, but it, it, these are things that we can think about doing to make our day-to-day -day, um, existence and, and activities more climate-proofed. That's good to hear. Um, I always like to hear that there's options available to people. And yeah, I think definitely there's different things to look into in terms of tailoring it to your own situation. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, and we really appreciate everything you had to share as a busy person uh, taking the time today with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of For the Love of Brantford. You can find all the episodes at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB, including the show notes where we list references, share images, and provide resources to continue your exploration of Brantford. We are your hosts, Mandy Samuel, Nathan Atherington, and Zila Ozels. This is a podcast in partnership with the Eagle Place Community Association, the Brant Historical Society, and the Brantford Public Library.